0: I'm Ken Absock and this is Daily Thrones. A quick look at the world of Ice and Fire. And what we are doing is, of course, looking back at each season as we prepare for Season 7. I have yet to give my overview of Season 3 and that is pretty simple. I don't quite know what to think of Season 3. I'm going to need your guys' help. Favor the station, don't miss a broadcast, and call in. I know some of my regulars are going to call in, but I want new voices to be heard. This is almost like a poll to see what we think of Season 3. I believe in my heart, I love every season of Game of Thrones, every episode, even the ones that I might say are bad, I still love. That argument is there, you can almost take that right now and throw it out the window because we're trying to really, really look at this thing. In Season 3, one of my least favorite episodes can be found, and that is The Climb. It is, well, Episode 6, nothing really happens, Baelish gives a great speech. At least that's what I thought, until I recently rewatched the episode before I started my big rewatch, and I realized the episode had a lot more than I kind of remembered. That's the reward of Game of Thrones. The more you dig in, whether it be the books or the show or both, sometimes even just a map, you'll gain more. You'll gain things that you didn't think you'd seen before. And season three might be like that. I definitely think that's the case with season two. I believe season two is very underrated. Season three doesn't suffer from that underrated status because of one episode and one moment. The Red Wedding. Episode nine, The Reigns of Castamere. Absolutely one of the finest episodes in the show so far. And absolutely one of the biggest, most talked about moments. And it earns everything. The Red Wedding is what it is. But does that make a season? And that's sometimes the question I ask myself. Season 3 was one of the first times. Now, Season 2, coming off of Season 1, it's hard, but it's different. But but there's a lot of great moments, and one-on-one scenes in Season 2 that I think buried some of these thoughts that came up with Season 3. Season 3 was the first time I remember a lot of people... Myself included And I'm usually not hypercritical when the show is in season I just take it all in every moment I love it I'll break it down later I'll react later But season 3 was the first time I remember going Huh, some things are kind of slow I really wish you would get some action and it might just be because by then we're conditioned to get to that episode 9. We're conditioned to have Ned's head chopped off or a big battle. And we knew something was coming. I had heard about the Red Wedding before this season. I was reading the books already, but had not gotten to this part of the books. I was reading behind the show. Finally caught up and surpassed it in season 4. So I knew of the Red Wedding, but I didn't think it I thought it was Joffrey's wedding. I, I didn't think it was Rob's wedding. So I was caught off guard and experienced it like everyone else. But as the, season, uh, as the seasons go on, I look back at season three and I don't know what to think. Arya with the Brotherhood, Arya with the Hound is the start of something good, but I think the Arya stuff is better in season four with the Hound. The Jamie Brienne stuff is great, but as it was happening, it, it wasn't as electric as he thought. The Danny stuff is okay. I love the moment when she leaves Astapor with her unsullied army, takes out Krasness and marches out triumphantly. That is great. The other Danny stuff might not be her best. And she as a character, as a character, started to disappoint me the most. I'm a fan of Stannis, but he was defeated the entire season. This is about Ser Davos being imprisoned and learning to read so he can get Stannis to the wall. There's a lot of good things in Season 3, but are there great things? I don't know. This is one of the rare times that as a pundit, I can't give you the answers. I just don't know. I flip-flop. Season 3 is a good season. They're all good. But like I said before, let's throw it out and let's have a discussion today here on Daily Thrones on Anchor about Season 3. Call in, use the hashtag Daily Thrones and let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. What is Season 3 mean to you and what is its true place in the pantheon of Game of Thrones Seasons When you rank them, where do you put them? Where do you put season three? Call in, find me, favor the station like I said. We're breaking down season three as we build towards season seven. That's what we do here on Daily Thrones. I'm Ken Absock, and this is Daily Thrones. A quick look at Season 3 of Game of Thrones as we prepare for Season 7. We've been going through each season looking at the overall takes, of the takeaways from the season. The power player of the season, which is kind of like the in-story character that really made the biggest impact, the biggest moves of power in each season. We said uh, yesterday that was uh, Tywin Lannister, of course, as our Season 3 power player. But this is the MVP. This is uh, now the character that really, really affected the season, dominated the season, uh, leaves a bit of a legacy in this season, strong influence, then that can go in and out of the story. Now, season three is for certain dominated by the Red Wedding. danny has got some great stuff going on. Ends the season high atop the uh, freed slaves of Yunkai, and they call her mother, Misa, Misa. It's great, big, glorious stuff, but I gotta tell you, this season to me, It's got a lot of good stuff, even though sometimes I remember season 3 not as favorably as other people do, but that's for me. But this season, really, to me, the best stuff going on leads to a co-MVP award. That's right, I'm saying the honors are shared with Jamie Lannister, Sir Jamie Lannister, He he is a knight, we can't take that away from him, Stannis says, and Brienne of Tarth. I think, without a doubt, one of the greatest things... In this season is Jamie Lannister's... Uh, the uh, unveiling of his true story. The Shades of Grey. That really, really, really take root in the story of Jamie Lannister. We finally have sympathy for him. Real sympathy. It was starting to grow. I think there were some moments. I think if you really stood back at the end of season two and he, and he gave his uh, poor old uh, dead Ned speech to Catelyn Stark and realized maybe he's right in his own weird twisted way. He does have more honor than a lot of other men. But it was still confusing because he was still Jamie Lannister, the season one villain. But in season two Jamie Lannister definitely definitely starts to unravel in front of us and in that unraveling reveals reveals ...who he just might really be. And that bathtub scene is one of the great scenes. The true story of the day and the moment he killed... ...the Mad King Aerys Targaryen. And it makes you think strongly... ...that he... ...he might be the one that was right. He might be one of the ones that did more for the realm than others. Others that would try to win the throne and dominate it. Maybe he, in some weird twisted way could have been a better ruler than Robert Baratheon. But I think it's easy to overlook that a lot of these changes that Jamie goes through, that a lot of these changes that we talk about, and with good reason, because they're big, big changes that really add layers to the show and the story. I think a lot of that happens because of what he sees in Brienne of Tarth, because of what he experiences alongside Brienne of Tarth. I think Jamie's save the cat character moment is literally saving Brienne from the bear. It is a moment where Jamie becomes something bigger and better than himself. When he watches her struggles in captivity, understands her struggles as a woman in this world, has sympathy for this character, someone he did not have sympathy for, he had open disdain threw insults at her constantly as he grew to understand her and maybe more down the line we don't know Jamie Lann- Lannister transformed in front of us so that is why I have to also award Brienne of Tarth this co-MVP award Brienne of Tarth and Jamie Lannister's journey in season 3 is hard to watch at times it's uncomfortable but is at the end of the day very rewarding it is why the show succeeds when it really hits on all cylinders. We talk often about those quote shades of gray. They're never more on display than with Jamie Lannister in this scene and Season in that scene in the bathtub. And that is something that could not have happened without Bran of Tarth. What do you guys think? You give me your MVP of Season 3. Call into the station. Find me on Twitter at KenNapsack. Use the hashtag DailyThrones. Favorite the station so you don't miss a broadcast. And let me know your thoughts on Season 3 and get your thoughts ready for Season 4. This is what we're doing here on Daily Thrones.
1: Hey, Ken. So I wanted to give you my Season 3 MVP, and I'm actually very curious to see who you pick for Season 3. So my Season 3 MVP is actually Jamie Lannister. I truly believe this was his best season. I loved his story arc this season. I never really thought he was like a broken man in Season 2 when he was Rob's captive, but in this season, we truly see him humanized and broken after he loses his hand. And you feel for him when he picks up a sword after that and he can't do anything with it. And then he has that amazing bathtub scene with Brienne where he reveals the truth about the day he slayed the Mad King that he was actually a hero. And then we see the, we see a true change in him, the way he goes back for Brienne when she's with the bear and he jumps in the pit to protect her. He, he truly went through, in my opinion, a transformation in this, in this season. And without question for me, he is my Season 3 MVP.
0: Hey, this is Ken Abzaki here for Daily Thrones on Anchor, a quick look at Season 3 of HBO's Game of Thrones. That's right, as we prep for Season 7, we've been looking back at all the seasons, taking a couple days per season to kind of talk about the power players, the MVPs, the standout characters, the moments, and maybe the things we didn't like. And we are on to Season 3, which was by this point a hit show everyone coming off of season one a great somewhat underrated season two everyone was ready for season three this is the one where i really believe the show stepped giant took giant leaps forward into the pop culture uh, subconscious and conscious uh here to help me through season three a quick overview from headcanon here the headcanon station on anchor is my force center broadcast partner joseph scrimshaw oh,
2: i am delighted to be here to talk game of thrones
0: all right, season three. We want some overview thoughts, then we'll break down into the nitty-gritty. What do, you, what do you think about this season?
2: Yeah, I think that you're right, that it, it captured the popular culture imagination because of some of the, uh, my favorite story arcs, like uh, with Egret and Jon Snow. Right. And it, the, getting into real catchphrase territory of yes. you-know-nothing Jon Snow, and also sort of, a, a, there there's some power couples. Yes. And I think that they was, those were a power couple, and then uh, also Jamie and Brienne. Yep being a sort of uh, almost like an awkward rom-com element to Game of Thrones that hadn't quite been there before this season. Yeah,
0: Game of Thrones famous for its pairings, but I don't think until this year did you really get those pairings in this kind of long form.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it made you excited to see like, okay, all this this is an unnatural unusual kind of storytelling where just long arcs of people bouncing around but then it made you excited season to season of what other unexpected characters are going to bounce into each other and become different because of one another.
0: We want the team ups. Yeah and grow and you talk about Brienne and Jamie I think those two characters really do a lot of growing Jamie even more than Brienne based off who Brienne was.
2: Yeah, and I think it's one of the seasons where you really uh, dig down into things can't be simple, they can't be black and white for anybody, because Brienne and Jamie are both sort of losing their simplicity. Yeah. Like, Brienne, uh, through the whole show, tries to hold on to just, like, I am a knight. Yeah. I am going to get my sword out for whoever is telling me to do the thing. And Jamie, through Jamie, she learns that's, that's not so easy. Yeah. And obviously Jamie grows as a human being, being in this much better human being's presence. Yep, yep. Yeah.
0: Grows f- into a human being as he becomes less of a human being, losing his hand in this season. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and
0: Egrin and John Snow.
2: Yeah, Egret and Jon Snow are so good. I think just partially because those actors are amazing together. But also, I think I've said before uh, here on Daily Thrones that I like the story of the North, of the ignorance, that everybody cares about the throne, but there's yeah. all of these awesome powers in the North. In yeah. Egret, the great catchphrase, viewed, you know nothing, Jon Snow, is also kind of telling that to us of like, yeah. everybody watching, you know nothing. Everybody <laughs> in King's Landing, you know nothing. Here I am in the real place where the real things are happening.
0: Yeah, I go back to season one where OSHA says so menacingly, I told your brother he's marching the wrong way. Yeah. As Rob Stark goes south, he should have gone north. Um, and Egret, we talked about it on Daily once a couple of days ago from season two, the legacy of Egret. A lot of the change and big picture stuff that John learns comes from Egret.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that uh, it is cool to watch it work on so many levels from just the really gut level of human instinctual, of like, those two people are charming. They like yeah. each other. I sure hope they have the relations. <laughs> uh, so there's that just gut level. Yeah. The cave, get to the cave. But also, the, it, it has this like more powerful idea of, you know, open yourself up yeah. to new ideas, new experiences. Don't be so rigid. Yeah. Going right back to what we were talking about with Brienne and Jamie. Yeah. A breaking down of rigidity.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. We have about uh, 40 seconds left here. Uh, uh, most valuable player of this season. Do you have one? Yeah, Egret. Egret. Uh, and that's that's very good. That sets up John for a lot. Power player of this season though, who in story made the biggest moves?
2: Uh the Murderer of the Red Wedding, right? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm spacing on
0: his. Uh, uh, you talk about Roose Bolton or, or Walder Frey.
2: Walder Frey, okay. Walder Frey, for sure. He's the big mover. He's the one who just yes. slaughters everyone. He,
0: he takes matters in his own own hands. Uh, Tywin uh, and, the, and the letter writing campaign gets that, and uh, it's a big move from Walder, who uh, you could see this almost coming from season one.
2: Yeah, and he's not that powerful, and yet he can make such a powerful action right. happen is amazing
0: i agree with that those are some good choices guys we're moving on to season three you know what to do call in right now give me your thoughts on season three give me your mvp your power player, your favorite moments your least favorite moments you guys know what to do season seven is so close but here on daily thrones we'll get you ready on anchor I'm Ken Absock and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire and digging deep into season three as we build towards season seven on July 16th, just a few weeks away. I want to start really digging in deep with the power player of the year, who made the biggest moves in season three. I think it's pretty clear, although I would be interested to hear other answers because they might be out there, but I think this is Tywin Lannister's season. The hand of the king returns to full power and we get to see how efficient and brutal and thorough he is at his work. In season two, Tywin was on the run at first and holed up at Harrenhal trying to figure out to, how to come back in a war he was losing. Then it took Baelish to uh, engage the Tyrells into a agreement that led to Tywin's moment of glory at the Battle of Blackwater, but it really wasn't Tywin's season. There were Times that he just seemed like he was possibly defeated and didn't have the help around him. But in Season 3, right from the beginning, when he burns down ice and makes it into Two Swords, Oathkeeper and Widow's Wail, he definitely is in control. The entire season, he is writing letters to someone we just don't know. An unknown individual. Unknown individual getting Tywin's words and, in the end, orders. Because it was Tywin Lannister who basically orchestrated the Red Wedding Massacre, using Walder Frey's willingness to uh, get uh, get a lot in return. But really, it was Tywin getting everything in return. Because not only were the Starks vanquished, was Rob Stark killed, his army defeated. But, in a way, Tywin had no blood on his hands. As he exclaims, uh, to explains to Tyrion, I should say, late in the season, the Freys are going to get all the credit and all the hate, for the North will remember. They're going to remember that the Freys and the Boltons did this. Tywin Lannister believed the North was for the taking, and he was on the way to figuring it out early on. The arrangement of marriages, Cersei to Loris. Tyrion to Sansa, were strategic, and he got his way. Uh, especially with Sansa and Tyrion, Loris and Cersei never came to be, but the plan was definitely in place. For a short moment, he uh, he met his match in Elena Tyrell. But even then, she had to admit he had one, one step ahead of her, one, one move on her, and she had to agree to the arranged marriage. Tywin Lannister was in control all through the season. Now, his children had some things to say, There was definitely some resentment brewing, and maybe that led partially to his undoing. But this was peak Tywin. From the moment we met him in Season 1, Episode 7, to now, this was the Tywin we've always heard about. But this finally was the Tywin that we all came to respect, and for the most part, fear and loathe. Tywin Lannister is our power player for Season 3. Do you have a different answer? Do you agree? Let me know. Call into the station here on Anchor or find me on Twitter at Napsuck. Use the hashtag DailyThrones. And don't forget to favorite the station here so you can get every segment that I'm putting out or calls that are coming in as we build towards Season 7 of Game of Thrones.
1: So I think, as I said, Jamie Lannister is my MVP of the season, but my power player of the season is actually his father, Tywin, all season long we see him writing. We well non-book readers they'd have no idea what's he writing. They assume he's writing stuff about the wedding and taking care of finance, but we find out the entire season he was orchestrating the wet red wedding. He was the one that was truly making that event happen. Even Lee, people have said Walter Frey would have never have done that if he didn't have certain assurances and he had those insur- insurances by Tyron Lannister. He was working behind the scenes to make this happen, end that part of the war in his mind. So without question for me, Tyree Lannister was the power player of Season 3.
0: I'm Ken Epsak and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the curious case of Dario Naharis. Season 3 was a lot of things, and like every season of Game of Thrones, brought in some interesting new characters. And Dario Naharis is definitely one of those characters. The enigmatic, charismatic, brooding self sword roaming the plains of Essos and finally making his way eventually to the heart and bed of Daenerys Targaryen. He is a popular book character. At least he was very much anticipated on the show. But it hasn't worked. And full disclosure, I'm a Sir Jorah Mormon fan. It breaks my heart when Dario shows up. That look on Jorah's face. When Danny asks about Dario's well being after Jorah just fought his way to free a city for Danny is heartbreaking. But let's move past that. I think we all can agree that for whatever reason, Dario Naharis on the show in both iterations, with two actors playing him at different times, hasn't connected. There hasn't been that groundswell of support or outpouring of love for this character. In the books, again, it's a little bit better. And there's book differences from show differences with a lot of characters. It's not just the generic stuff. In the show, he's part of the Second Sons. In the book, he's part of the sellsword uh, mercenary company known as the Stormcrows. His background's a little different. In the show, he has a rivalry with with Grey Worm. It's not there in the books. It's not just that. There's something that's not coming off the page on the show. And I think both actors who have, have portrayed him are doing their jobs well. I got no problem with them at screen. Michael Huseman. I mean, they're doing what they're supposed to do. But... On one hand, you have... Ed Screen not being... Exotic enough. And Huseman comes in and he just looks like a... A Northerman. Like a Northman wandering... Essos. Doesn't stand out. In the book, he's got this blue beard... And the blue hair. Gold tooth. He is truly... An exotic man of the free cities. It is a counter-programming in, in a ways to, to not just Sir Jorah, but a lot of other characters we've become used to. I think that's part of the reason. He is underplayed on the show. He should have been bigger, should have been bolder. But maybe I'm wrong. What do you guys think of Dario Naharis? Did the show get it right in either version? The change was a bit shocking. You go from... Season three, you change actors, which wasn't the producer's fault. Ed Screen decided he wanted to go off and take over for Jason Statham and move on to the roles like a Deadpool. Great. Good for him. That happens. But they cast in an entirely different direction and changed the character even more. I say, dulling him down. But what do you guys say? Talk to me about Dario Naharis. On the show, in the books, what are your feelings? He's definitely a character who made an impact in season three. But could it have been a bigger impact? Let me know. We'll see you here on Daily Thrones.
3: Hey, Ken. So I'm somewhat surprised to hear that Book Dario has a fan club. I personally find uh, that version with his ludicrous blue hair and flamboyant mannerisms and gold accoutrements to be ridiculous. If that character had been translated to the show, I think he would have been a laughingstock. Um, if I am sympathetic to the idea that he's uh, a bit less charismatic than one might like, I personally prefer the... Uh, Mikkel Huisman's version to Ed Scrine. I think Mikkel Huisman's a better actor. But I think that the biggest uh, difference with Dario is that in the books we see him through Danny's eyes, and Danny, who's much younger on the page, it has kind of a girlish crush. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but her tummy kind of flutters every time she looks at him. And show Danny is more steely. She's more mature. She isn't as impressed with that this guy And as a result, I think we might be less impressed with him as well.
0: I'm Ken Afzak, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the Red Wedding. We cannot take a closer look at Season 3 with really going deeper into the biggest event of that season, and still to date, one of the biggest events of the show. Even people that don't really know Game of Thrones or don't watch it as much as you and I are kind of familiar with The Red Wedding. It definitely seeped into pop culture. I think Ned Stark's death course was the first to do that and the first to sneak in, but it was so early on that the pop culture zeitgeist maybe still missed it. It was The Red Wedding and the reaction videos to The Red Wedding. It was Maisie Williams' Vine video of my my mother, my brother. They're dead. All that stuff really caught on launch Game of Thrones into another stratosphere if it was possible for me I got to experience it pure I've talked often here on Daily Thrones that I started reading the books after the series I fully admit that I became a book snob later and I am a book snob at times I have all the maps I have the world uh, the history books I study them obsessively I'm re-reading book 5 right now I caught up <laughs> believe me but I respect those that started reading this in 1996. I respect those that threw the third book, Storm of Swords, across the room when it actually came out. But I got to experience the Red Wedding pure. Again, kind of hurt. I knew something was coming. But I mentioned, I mentioned before that I thought it was Joffrey's wedding. I thought it was something else. It could not be Rob. Rob was going to go on and avenge his father's death. I thought Rob was going to reach King's Landing. Did I think he was going to win? No was shocked when he died, but I also think he was somewhat deserved. That's right. I like Rob Stark. I really do. I like Talisa, a show addition, of course. I like Catelyn Stark, though I have some problems, but when you look back, the stubbornness of the Starks, Definitely course to the veins of Rob Stark, and 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 he kind of put himself there. Was it right? No, I'm not defending Walter Frey or Roose Bolton. I'm not defending even Tywin on this. Uh, though I understand Tywin's military strategy here, and I understand his hey a, a, a thousand die or ten thousand die, which one you which one would you rather? But Rob Stark, if you go back, this Catelyn Stark. For all the crap I sometimes give her for starting problems, she was warning this before she even stepped foot. Into uh, the throne room there, the the big uh, the hall to meet with uh, the with Walder Frey. She warned Rob, "Don't trifle with this man. Don't nothing that we can march around it." And then when he fell in love with Talisa, don't make Walder Frey mad. But he did. And when Tywin Lannister found an opening, he wrote those letters, and Walder Frey and Roose Bolton took it. The book, of course, as, as always, is a little different, but I think in general they're the same. The execution of the Red Wedding, pun intended, on the show was a thing of beauty. The moment Catelyn Stark sees Blackwalder closing the doors and hears the st- first strains of the reins of Castamere and turns around with a horrified look on her face and then finds Roose Bolton with the chainmail and slaps him. That sequence is still some of my favorite in Game of Thrones the abject horror on her face. She knows right then they've made a huge mistake and they might not get out of it. It was brutal. It was shocking. The death of Talisa was played so well. Talisa, of course, is a show-only character. Jane Westerling is Rob's wife in the books and she wasn't even there. Brendan the Blackfish Tully wasn't even there, but they walk him out. He goes out to take a piss and he escapes back to catch up where he's supposed to be in the story. But that moment... It's a moment of dread that it still can get me. I eventually caught up and read the books and passed on, and we can talk as I get into season four what that meant, how it changed my perception on the show. But I, for one, am very glad I experienced the Red Wedding for the first time on television. It is the moment that I'm glad they they didn't. They even made it more brutal. The producers, the writers, everyone involved kept the essence of the Red Wedding nice and pure. George R. R. Martin was supposed to be in the Red Wedding, but his schedule prevented him. His schedule's weird. George, you should have been in the Red Wedding. You don't complete the books. What else are you working on? A convention appearance? Should have been in the show. Guys, give me your reactions to the Red Wedding. Call into the station. Find me on Twitter, hashtag Daily Thrones. Tell me about the Red Wedding and your experiences. See you tomorrow on Daily Thrones.
3: Hey, Ken. So I love season three, as I love every season of Game of Thrones. I would probably rank it third or fourth out of the six seasons we have so far. I agree that the Red Wedding overshadows conversation over a lot of it for good or ill. I would say mostly for good. But there are other great moments and episodes. I would personally put the episodes three, four, and five, Walk of Punishment, and Now His Watch is Ended, and Kiss by Fire up against the very best that the show has done. Um... I think that perhaps some of the characters are overshadowed by other power players this season. Tyrion and Cersei in particular are overshadowed by Tywin, and Stannis and Bran uh, are really kind of biding their time until they get to more uh, significant story developments in Season 4, which could be a source of frustration. But other characters like Jaime and Brienne and the Tyrells Really do ha- and John have some good moments that I think make this season all in all a worthwhile entry.
1: Hey Ken, I'm, I'm, see I'm really curious to see what everybody else thinks about season three because I'm, you know, I've, I call in after I rewatch every every when I get to the finale uh, during my rewatch, and I've told you, it's season three is just not my favorite. It's I mean there's nothing in it like the Dorn stuff in season five. It's not bad. And I agree with you. I don't think any season's bad. Not even season five. I don't look at season five as being bad, but the season just doesn't grab me in the way season one and two did. And why is that? It's hard to put a finger on it. I mean, Theon's torture—I—I I, I didn't exactly like it being an entire season arc. You're right with Danny at the—you know—after episode four, it does get a little, uh, you know, it's not her best and. I just... It's just not on the top of my list. And a lot of people love Season 3, and I want to hear why.
0: I'm Ken Apsock, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire. And if we're taking a closer look at Season 3 of HBO's Game of Thrones, then we have to take a moment. Pause. Stand up. Bow. Tip our glasses back. Tip our caps. And then get insulted by... The Queen of Thorns. Elena Tyrell made her debut in season three, and it was quite a debut, quite a performance made by Diana Rigg. The character absolutely jumps off the pages and onto the screen. Now, for me, Diana Rigg, when she popped up on the screen, I was like, it's Lady Holiday from The Great Muppet Caper, but she's been in so much more, and she's earned three Outstanding Guest Actress in a Drama Series nominations. Emmy Award nominations, it is, for her performances in 2013, 2014, and 2015. She absolutely is Elena Tyrell. Now, in season three, she is definitely in control. She's definitely got a lot to say about Mace Tyrell, Tywin Lannister, and everything going on. She just does have to uh, stand back a little bit to Tywin Lannister. He outsmarts her just for a moment. ...with the possibility of putting Loras Tyrell, an heir for the Tyrells, of course, an heir to Highgarden, putting Loras on the Kingsguard, which would take him out of that kind of lineage and running, and that's something they can't have. And it is the only moment from Elena Tyrell that she seems uh, bested. Other than that she is firing all cylinders she is still to this moment whether she's addressing the Sand Snakes whether she's taking down a king whether she is defending her family and trying desperately to impart all her knowledge into Marjorie Tyrell even though it didn't work out in the end Elena Tyrell is one of the all time best characters on Game of Thrones so take a moment stand back And feel the insults. Here's to the Queen of Thorns. I'm Ken Apsock and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire. And let's take a look at season four, a little overview segment like we've been doing here for the first three seasons. Season four, it's sometimes maligned. I've been in those conversations and other times it's championed. I personally come somewhere down the middle. I think, much like season three is remembered for the Red Wedding, season four is remembered for Oberyn Martell, and with good reason. More on him later. But I think there's other things in the season that uh, people, especially if you're book, book readers, can have a little problems with. And this might be the thing about season four, and I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts out there. You know how to reach me more on that at the end of the show, of course. This season has some big departures from the book. Now, to be clear, every season has departures from the book. It has to. I'm not complaining about it. I just think, more than anything, I think the mutineers up at Craster's Keep, it's at first not a departure, but John going out there... Getting revenge for Sir Gior, Mormont, the Lord Commander, uh, f- f- fighting all those guys, the, the killing of Rast, all good stuff. The almost meeting Bran, Bran being captured by the mutineers, it's all a little different and it's all a little outside the box. And if you are sometimes married to the books, and we can be as, as book readers, you find some of this stuff troubling. But on closer. Look, on closer inspection, which is what we love about Game of Thrones, it requires closer inspection. I think there's a lot of things in Season 4 to like. The Mountain and the Viper is a great episode with one of the most heartbreaking, gruesome moments. The Watchers on the Wall, which sees the entire episode directed by Neil Marshall up there at the wall for the battle with the wildlings, the death of Egret. Earlier on one of the Daily Throne shows, I said she died in season five, uh, but I uh, got that wrong, but I had the episode right. They all bleed together. I apologize. But it's up there. Stannis, my man, coming to save the day. You know I love that. There's a lot of great things in this season. And some of the changes, I think, are, are actually good. Brienne fighting the Hound is a big change from show to book book to show however you want to look at it and I love this version a little better I have to admit that it just makes some sort of sense and the journey of Brienne the constant failing to get the Stark girls to come with her the constant failing to do her duty the one she promised to Catelyn Stark it's heartbreaking and then she gets to check off another big victory even though the hound as we know doesn't die Another big victory. Brienne is absolutely one of the best sword fighters in Westeros. And this one, to me, finally really puts the seal on that. She's good. Hard to be defeated. And that battle with her and the Hound is the best sword fight I've ever seen. Movies, shows, comic books, poems, documentaries, doesn't matter. Kudos to Gwendolyn Christie, and Roy McCann for pulling that one off. Season four has some interesting things, some great episodes, and of course the big, the big death of Joffrey. But even that fell short in some people's eyes. I actually liked it. He died gruesome and somewhat embarrassingly in front of everybody. It wasn't a big head chopped off. Uh, Jon Snow didn't get to enact revenge. Sansa didn't get to enact enact revenge. Joffrey's death was very much of the show It was a plot It was a power play It was a scheme And it happened very realistically The death was, like I said, gruesome And it's embarrassing It's shameful He doesn't get to go out like a hero He gets to choke and cough and wheeze Until his face turns purple It's a Purple Wedding I liked it. What do you guys like about season four? Let's start talking about it. Let me know right here on Daily Thrones. Call into the station. Favorite the station so you don't miss a broadcast. And find me on Twitter at Catnapsuck. Use the hashtag Daily Thrones. But let's talk season four. Give me your moments, your MVPs, your power players, your schemers and dreamers. Who made this season memorable, or maybe who made this season frustrating? Let me know here on Daily Thrones. I'm Ken Absock and this is Daily Thrones—a quick look at the world of Ice and Fire. It's time to name our Power Player of Season Four, and I've looked at the notes, I've looked at the episodes, I've looked at the episode recaps, I've looked at some analysis, I've, I've made some charts and graphs, compared notes with my original notes, cross-checked my notes and graphs, and i i didn't want to I didn't want to give this award to someone who's already won it. You know, I wanted to be cute. Who really got the biggest power moves in season four? Is it Olena? I mean, yeah, she had some definitely big strides. She had part in a big plot to take down Joffrey. But you know what? Can we really deny that Peter Baelish, Littlefinger, our season one power player, deserves this award again? Season four as remembered for Oberyn the Great Watchers in the Wall, uh, Watchers on the Wall episode, the Mountain of Viper episode, the arrival of the children. Bran finds Three Eyed Raven. The Hound dies allegedly, possibly at the hands of Brienne. There's all those things going on, but Joffrey's death was story-wise perhaps the biggest, most important death on the show since maybe Ned Stark. You could argue Robb Stark. But, I mean, we've been wanting Joffrey to die almost from the moment we met him. And for the sake of Westeros, that needed to happen. Elena Tyrell definitely had a lot to do with that. It is... <laughs> Blood's on her hands. She did what she had to do. But Baelish is behind that. He is behind Ser Dantos. Escaping with Sansa. Then... He takes Sansa up to the Vale, marries Liza, the same woman who we finally confirm she finally admits she killed her husband John Aaron because Baelish told her to, because Baelish orchestrated that death. So before, as we've said before here in Daily Thrones, before the show even begins, before even the book begins, Baelish was scheming and dreaming. Chaos is a ladder, and when you don't have chaos, you create your own. And that's confirmed here. Then Baelish kills her, pushes her out the moon door. And against all odds, somehow, without uttering a word, convinces Sansa Stark to go along with him, cover for him, and now Baelish has the veil. This is power. As Baelish would say, knowledge is power, but as Cersei taught him, power is power. And I believe Baelish, in this season, took giant leaps forward, and his plan was starting to happen. Everything he thought of was starting to happen. When things went awry, he he recovered. Chaos is a ladder. He's been saying that all along. He said it in season two to Tywin, and Tywin said, of course, of course it is, Baelish. Tell me something no one else will tell me. Chaos is opportunity. Yes, yes, yes. Nice, Baelish. But it always was for Baelish. And this season, he took some of the biggest swings. And instead of missing, he hit home runs. He had a hand in Joffrey's death. A hand, really, essentially, in in the blaming of Tyrion, which led to the death of Obron. He's just knocking people out. That leads to the death of Tywin. Baelish is clearing pieces off the chessboard. All the way to being crowned. You gotta give that guy credit. Littlefinger. Littlefinger knows the Game of Thrones well. Which is why I still say... And a lot of people agree, there's groundswell support. We don't want him to. He's not a great dude. But if Baelish actually gets to sit on the Iron Throne even for a minute, with a crown upon his head, in some ways he will have deserved it. What do you guys think? Baelish is our our two-time power player winner. I think he deserves it. But I'm open to suggestions. If you got a first place winner, hey, give me a second place. I think it's Elena, but you tell me. Let me know. You know the drill. Call in here on Daily Thrones. Find me on Twitter. Use the hashtag Daily Thrones. We're getting so close to season seven. Having fun. Looking back at all the big moments, the big characters here on Daily Thrones. I'm Ken Absuck, and this is Daily Thrones, and it's time to name our Season 4 MVP. Is there any doubt? Could it be anyone else? It's Oberyn Martel, the Red Viper. Pedro Pascual deserves every award that he didn't get for this portrayal of Oberyn Martell. I'll be the first to say it, definitely not the last. Eh, I'm the first on Daily Thrones, but I'm sure others have said it. I guess I should clarify Ober Martel was just damn better on the show than he was in the books. In the third book, Storm of Swords, where this all happens, Ober Martell, to me, again, this is a me personally type of uh, view, was lost in the shuffle. I remember having to kind of go back and read, wait a minute, who died? Wait, where- Oh, the- Oberyn. Yeah, that's right, Oberyn, the Sand Snakes. I got it, I got it, I got it. But on the show, season four was dominated by the performance of Pedro Pascual from the first very scene. When he walks in, he hears the Lannisters humming a song, his hand goes through the flame of a candle. You know Martell is not like any other character on Game of Thrones. Except that he is. His death broke hearts. It shattered wills. It shattered psyches. I've got friends that are still affected by that death. I got a friend who I sat watching in a hotel room in Vegas, watching that episode together. I knew it was coming. He did not. When the episode ended, we both couldn't say a word. We had to get back down to an event we were there for. We couldn't do it. My friend was emotionally shaken for days. And I think that begins from the moment he sets foot in King's Landing. Everything about him is different. Everything about Dorne is different. Dorne, though the the fourth book of Feast for Crows, is definitely not uh, the favorite book of people. It presents some new interesting characters, some new interesting locations with Dorne. You hear about Dorne all through the show and books and then when you finally get it on the show it's a bit disappointing but it's still different but your first taste is with Obra Martell and Alaria Sand they are sexy they're exotic they're 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 just their worldview is different it's everything that most of Westeros is not there's a reason that they did not bow to the dragons you get it they just they have a flair and it all shines through with Obermartel, And it builds and it builds and it builds. And when he gives his speech to Tyrion Lannister. The first time Pedro actually was on set was shooting the scene. When he says, but what about what I want? And he says, I will stand for you. I will be your champion. It is a moment that will bring tears if you're not careful. Tears if you are careful. It is one of the best moments in the show. And when you re-watch it, even with the knowledge, you can understand that if you did not know this was coming, if you did not know the death of Oberyn was coming, that moment makes you forget everything about Game of Thrones. This is season four. We know characters die. We've been through Ned Stark. We watched the Red Wedding in horror. Joffrey is gone. We know characters die. But in that moment... Pasquale's performance and the character of Oberyn intersect in this moment of pure beauty and you believe it when he says I will stand for you, when he tells Tyrion I will be your champion, when everyone else has turned their back and he is going to get revenge for this horrible murder and rape of his sister you believe it's going to happen and during that fight you believe it's going to happen when he starts pulling the Iniga Montoya, Iniga Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, you raped her, you killed her, you murdered her, admit it, admit it, and then he dies horribly. We're all screaming like hilarious sand. It is one of the most effective deaths, so well set up, and that is why Obra Martell has to be the Season 4 MVP. What do you guys think? You know the drill? Let me know. Call in right here on Daily Thrones.
2: Hey, Ken. I totally agree with you with Oberon being named the MVP for the season. do love the Red Viper. I have a, a statuette of him that is absolutely amazing. But I gotta say, with season four, I'm a little surprised there hasn't been more of a push for Tyrion. Um, I mean, talk about a powerhouse performance. During season four, he has multiple memorable scenes. Peter Dinklage just knocked it out of the park every time. Between the trial and his conversations with the people when he was in the dungeon, whether it was Jamie or Oberyn or Bronn, absolutely one of the best acting performances I've ever seen on television. So, not arguing with you about the Red Viper, but I definitely wanted to give Peter Dinklage his due for the amazing work in Season 4. Thanks, Ken.
1: The Red Viper guy was definitely my MVP, and that speech you're talking about what, that he gives to Tyrion, it is so good and well done when he says to Tyrion and tells her, you know, how your sister said you were this monster and how she said she wanted you to die and all this stuff. And he says to Tyrion, but when I looked at you, I saw just a little baby. And Tyrion has tears in his eyes. It is such an incredible scene. He was such an incredible character. Take it from us in the book and especially the show, as you said. I agree, he's a better character on the show way too soon. But he left such an impact on us all. I think that's part of the reason, part of the reason, not all of it, but part of the reason the Dorn stuff in season five just failed in comparison to the Red Viper. No one on the show, before or since, can match the charisma of that character
0: put a call up on the station from our good friend Ventress87, who always has some good ideas, and I like her, well, we're not going to call it a counter to Oberyn as my Season 4 MVP, but an addition and a a good uh, idea to stop and give credit to Peter Dinklage for what he did in Season 4. Part of the reason I think maybe I overlook some of the stuff uh, that Peter Dinklage does in Game of Thrones is he's just so good. He immediately, I mean, from episode one, season one, stood out, grabbed the headlines. He became a fan favorite, and Tyrion was already a great character. But Dinklage does such a great job bringing him to life. But season four... With so much obstacles in front of that character, Peter Dinklage does absolutely own it. And whereas Pedro Pascual it, it, it succeeds so much as Oberyn, sometimes you're only as good as your scene partners, right? And if Oberyn has that great moment with, with the speech, standing up to be Tyrion's champion, it is Peter Dinklage that is feeling that support and that moment of relief when Tyrion just finally has someone willing to stand up for him it is perhaps one of the greatest scenes in game of thrones and that has a lot to do with Peter Dinklage just as much as Pedro Pascal so venture city 7 you're right let's take a moment to give a big round of applause to Tyrion Lannister and Peter Dinklage in season 4